following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, when I got here this morning, young Judah runs up to tell me that he had finished reading the book of Job. And because of that, he got a special reward. Now, we, don't, we do that, don't we, boys and girls? Uh, we don't have to give you rewards, but we give you rewards to encourage you. I know I have a friend at the seminary. He gives his son's reward if they'll read a certain book. Others, uh, if they uh, will memorize catechism. I, I have a friend... Uh, up in Virginia, who would give his, let his children get driver's license after they've learned the Shorter Catechism. And so we have all kinds of incentives. Clean your room, and we'll go get ice cream. And that's a good thing. It's not wrong to uh, use incentives to encourage people. We have that in the business world. Some companies will give bonuses uh, to encourage uh, a good uh, behavior and, and diligence at work. Or it might be that the doctors told you you need to lower your cholesterol and you have to make a decision. Is that worth it, giving up what I like for other things? These become incentives. But God also spiritually uses incentives uh, with us and for us to encourage us in the pursuit of obedience. Those of you who were there last Lord's Day evening when I preached on Romans chapter 15, we looked at two wonderful gospel motives that God gives to encourage us to pray. But if you notice how particularly God does this, the more urgent the need and the more sinful the person. How often, as in Jeremiah chapter 3, for example, when God calls uh, Israel to repentance. How often when he's judging his people, he, he's pronouncing doom and gloom, but then he says, but repent. And he gives all these precious promises if they repent. It's just a wonderful thing to look at God's uh, loving kindness with us, his patience and the way he, he continues to encourage us to come. Well, this morning we're going to look at a, at a passage that uh, it describes repentance with uh, Great motives that God gives with respect to uh, repentance. And I hope that you will be able to examine your own repentance by this as well as to be, uh, be refreshed. Uh, we come now to the end of uh, Eliphaz's uh, last speech. Now, the first 20, 20 verses are pretty abysmal. Uh, he is manifesting just trademark self-righteousness. He, he's got great views about God. But then on the basis of that, he falsely accuses Job of all kinds of invented things. He, he misconstrues Job's words. At the end of the day, what we see is he's self-righteous. He's deceived himself about his standing with God. But then so remarkably, after this rant, he has this gracious call to repentance. And as we've seen Eliphaz's speech, that's really what he's about. He's, he's been the most tender of, of the three men. Uh, and so now he... He offers Job hope. Now, Job doesn't need to repent. You understand that. Not in the way that Eliphaz is talking. Um, but uh, it's, it's a glorious section. In fact, Matthew Henry said he could almost forgive Eliphaz for all that he had said simply because of this gracious call to 
uh, repentance. So it, it serves for us as a very useful paradigm about repentance and its advantages. So what I'm going to show you by God's grace is that God blesses those who seek him through repentance. God blesses those who seek him through repentance. And I'll develop that proposition under two headings. The, um, the work or, or the nature of repentance and uh, the blessings of repentance. The nature of repentance, uh, verses uh, 21 through 24, and then the blessings of repentance, which will be 25 to 30. Well, as we begin to look at the, the work of, or the nature of repentance, um, we see two things. We see the ground of repentance and then the work of repentance. Now, verses 21 and 22, the Spirit gives us the ground, the basis, the foundation. Yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. So the first thing that he tells us to do is to um, yield to God. Now, the word is better translated uh, in the New King James, acquaint yourself with him. It's a word of intimate knowledge. It's, it's a word, for example, David uses in Psalm 139 of God. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is the word. In other words, get acquainted with God. The ground or the beginning of repentance is a true, accurate knowledge of who God is, who he is in terms of his uh, glorious attributes, but particularly here in who he is in terms of his holiness. This holy God that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6. You need to know that God is holy. That God cannot look with favor upon sin. That this holy God has said the soul that sins must die. Get acquainted with God. No, you cannot repent if you do not know who God is. And be at peace with him. Now, I think we fight against God, don't we? I mean, sometimes even as Christians, we find ourselves fighting against God and Particularly non-Christians do that. But no, we must, we must know him and acquiesce to him uh, and to his purposes. We must seek peace with him in the way that he has appointed. And that is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the apostle teaches us, God is reconciled to us through Christ. God lays down his weapons against us. Because Christ has satisfied the justice of God so that we can lay aside our enmity and come to God. And so repentance begins with a true, accurate knowledge of who God is. And I trust that you're seeking often to grow in your knowledge of God. In your daily devotions, you're wanting to know more of God. You're wanting God to reveal himself to you. You want to grow in the grasp of of his being, his attributes, his, his names, his titles, his works, all the ways. Uh, you, might, you want to be astonished by his beauty and, and uh, by his grace and, and, and a proper fear of his majesty and his holiness. Uh, for we must be growing in the knowledge of God if we are going to grow in repentance. If you're not a Christian this morning, you must know God as he's revealed himself in the Bible, not the God of culture and not the God of your imagination. You must know the God who has revealed himself in 
the Bible, and you must seek to be at peace with him. And then the second ground is you must know him, and I've already intimated this, according to his word. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. Now, the word instruction is the word Torah, and it can be used for the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments or even for the Pentateuch. But now you're going to remember that uh, Job didn't have any Old Testament. Moses had not yet written um, the law of God by inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, when Job lived. And so we learn a very important thing here about God's revelation, as Hebrews teaches us in chapter 1, up to the writing of Scripture. This led me to a remarkable statement about um, uh, Abraham in Genesis 26.5. You know, we probably all have jumped over this a hundred times, forgetting that Abraham lived long before Moses. But God says there that uh, your descendants will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, those words, charge, commandments, statutes, and laws, are used throughout the Old Testament for the revelation of God. And what the Spirit is showing us here when uh, Eliphaz is telling Job uh, to uh, take heed to the instruction of God's mouth is that there was a faithful record of God's will from Adam down through Noah to Abraham to his descendants. And we've looked in the past, looked at how these three men would have had some relationship even to Abraham and were believers. And so the law was on their heart. God confirmed that in verbal revelation. And we've seen that God at times gave visions to the church to help them along the way. But notice the word mouth. The words of my mouth. That's also used in Psalm 119. And it reminds us that these words are not men's words. And what you have in your Bible, not a man's word. This is the word of God's mouth that he has supernaturally given to us through holy men born along by the Holy Spirit. And if you're going to repent, then you must know God's word. Yes, you must know God's law. You must know where it um, exposes you. You must let your heart be ripped open by the Holy Spirit through uh, the record of Scripture. We are so much more blessed. We don't have an oral revelation. We've got a completed, infallible revelation of God. But we must then seek God according to His Word. Again, not according to our imagination. Not what we might think would please God. You know, the church has done this to pay this money or or go on a pilgrimage or even more radical things to lock yourself away or to beat yourself with a whip or to give money or to do good in the neighborhood or or be a, you know, no. We must seek God according to his word, which is first to be convicted of our sins and then to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he lays out this ground of repentance, you notice He says, good will come to you, and God's word will be established. You establish God's word in your heart. You lay it up in your heart, good then comes to you. That's the ground of repentance. The two basic foundational things that all true repentance is going to be based on, a knowledge of God, and that comes through the knowledge of his law in his word. 
Well, what then is the work of repentance? That's verses 23 and 24. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold. The word return in verse 23 is a word used throughout Scripture for repent. To repent is to turn. Turn in two ways. To repent is to turn to God, uh, as he says at first, return to the Almighty. Using here the name, the patriarchal name, this is God Almighty. The all-powerful, the all-sufficient God, the sovereign God. It says you must turn to him. You must seek the Lord. You do so, he says, you will be restored. You will be upbuilt. You will be reestablished. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust, then we see that turning to God is what? Turning away from sin. That's why the Bible uses the word return. We've gone off in our own way. We all, like sheep, have gone in our own way. We transgressed the law of God. Before we're born again, that is our nature, to walk absolutely opposite the way of the Lord. But even as the psalmist confesses at the end of Psalm 119, uh, there is a bent in our nature yet. And we find ourselves wandering away. And so we must have daily repentance. We must be turning away from our sin to God. To God as he's revealed himself to us. To God according to the word, which is the foundation of our repentance. But notice as well the specificity. Remove unrighteousness far from your tent. That's a more general thing, is that we must forsake all unrighteousness, anything contrary to the word of God, not just in our hearts, but in our dwelling, our environment. But notice this, place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold. This is a reference to idolatry. The reference of, of having trust in gold, finding their respite in wealth. He says, consider it nothing. Repentance is to forsake all that you have considered to be profitable and glorious, all in which you have put your trust. It's nothing but dust. Let this gold of Ophir, the finest gold available in Job's day, be no more than a, a stone in a river. So you see how specific he is. It's not just put away unrighteousness. He assumed, wrongly, he assumed that because Job was a wealthy man, this would be at the root of much of his problem. He's already alluded to that, the, the mighty who uh, ignores his neighbors and all of that. So he says, you must forsake that proud um, contempt of, of the poor, uh, of putting your trust in your wealth, consider it nothing. Now, that's not true for Job, but the principle is quite true, you see. If you're going to repent, you must turn away from your gods. You must turn away from every sin that delights you. You must renounce it uh, and consider it to be, as Paul would say, even um, less than dung, to be nothing, uh, pitiable and corruptible. Beyond that, worthy only of the corruption of the grave. And that's the work of repentance, you see. This is what everyone who repents must do initially as he comes to Christ. It's what you and I should be doing daily. 
There's a great summary of repentance in our catechism. Uh, 87, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You see, these, there's three things here. There is an, an, in, uh, an intellectual aspect to repentance. There's an emotional aspect to repentance. And there's a volitional aspect to repentance. We must begin, as the Catechism says here, with, and it parallels our text, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Now, the Confession expands one thing here that is quite delightful, and that is that in repentance, um, the sinner out of a sight of sense, not only the danger, but the filthiness and odiousness of his sin is contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. You see, there are two things. Odious and hateful because your sin, boys and girls, the littlest sin, a lie, hitting your brother or your sister, a littlest sin is hideous, it's grievous, it is ugly in the sight of God, as is all sin. So that's summarized uh, here in the Shorty Catechism, but that's what we have in our text, isn't it? You see, that uh, you must acquaint yourself with God and his law. And that's where you come to be aware of the hideous, grievous nature of sin. And then there is the uh, effective part of that, as the catechism said, oh, and do apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. This is part of the difference of true repentance and the sorrow of the world. We never stop just with, oh, I'm a sinner and, and I've grievously offended God. No, God always couples in the calls of repentance his mercy. And we see that you know, in our text. You'll be at peace with him. Good will come to you. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. And it's so important that we see Christ then in our repentance. And then the, the, the affections with uh, a grief and hatred. So this turning away, again, must not simply be a bare turning away, but with some sorrow. That's the sorrow that Paul expresses, you see, in, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 7. A sorrow that is true repentance, not a worldly sorrow. No, a sorrow that's summarized by these uh, particular expressions. Um, earnestness, vindication, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of wrong. Earnest in coming to God with godly sorrow. A desire to vindicate ourselves, not by making excuses, but yes, I am all that God has said that I am. Uh, then with indignation about my sin and with uh, fear of God, reverence, awe, longing for comfort, zeal, and then avenging the wrong and dealing with it properly as it needs to be dealt with. And then, of course, the last part is with full purpose of endeavor after new obedience. And that's what we see here. Um, remove unrighteousness far from your tent. It's not just a mental thing, you see. It is action. 
It is action that wants to put away sin, put away our idolatry, take hold of God. Have you repented in this manner? Is anyone here today, and you consider yourself a Christian, but this idea of repentance is completely foreign to you. You've never thought about coming to God in this manner. Now, your repentance does not make you acceptable to God. That's only faith in Christ. But repentance is necessary if you're going to have true faith. Let each of us then, as we're in Christ, examine our repentance by this standard here in Job and in the Catechism that we might grow in repentance and in the daily exercise of repentance. Now, to help us, we get these great motivations, these blessings. So we've seen the nature of repentance. We see now the blessings of repentance. And there are four things spelled out for us in verses uh, 25 through 30. Uh, Delight in God, answer to prayer, uh, success in proper plans, and usefulness to others. Well, we begin with what's the most precious, and that's delighting God. He said, if you will reject your idolatry and and throw aside your trust and wealth, verse 25, then again the Almighty, this all-powerful God, will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Now think about that. He's saying that God Almighty will give himself to you because he delights in you, and you're going to delight in him. This word delight is a word that means that which is uh, most exquisite treasure. It might be that very special book or toy that you kids have, or it might be an heirloom that one of you received from uh, a parent or an ancestor, or some uh, particular thing that you have, uh, and you get great pleasure from that, and that's not wrong. That's the word, though, that there must be one pleasure above all pleasures, and that's God Almighty. And this is what God gives to you when you repent in a proper manner, a growing love and satisfaction in Him. Now, notice how that relates to repentance. You won't see it right off. But he says, you'll delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. Lifting up the face here has to do with coming to God with a newfound confidence. In the Bible, the face is cast down in shame. So what do Adam and Eve do? They clothe their shame and they hide from God. what, What does a child do? When the child knows he's wrong and he, he looks down, he won't look up at you. He says, you have to look at me. We look down in shame. Our sin brings guilt, which brings shame. When I pastored in Houston, there was a man in the church that had uh, been arrested and was guilty of check-kiting. Um, and uh, I went with him. He repented. And I went with him, though, to the day in court. And when the judge said, how do you plead? And His head was down. He couldn't even look up. He said, guilty. Guilty. That's what shame does. So you see what's being promised here to you when you repent. And some of you wrestle with the shame of sin. But when you repent, God lifts up your head. He lifts it up so you can look into him, into his, um, his beauty. And know he's accepted you. 
and know what he's done to accept you for Christ's sake. And you delight in him. Do you delight in God this morning? You see your chief treasure above all other treasures. Are you willing to cast everything else away as rocks and dust for God? I read again recently in, in Hebrews chapter 10 about the persecution. And boy, there's one line there that tests me. Um, and that is, you acquiesce to this, they're snatching away of your possessions. And I sit in the comfort of my most beautiful house with all my treasures that are there. And I have to search my heart. Following Christ, if delighting in God meant to let somebody take every bit of this away, am I willing to do so? Well, I am by God's grace. I know if he brings me to that point, he will give me grace. But that's what we're talking about. If God's your chief delight, nothing in the world can compete with him. Is he? Boys and girls, do you love God above all else? You see your treasure. You develop that now. Now as you're young, to love God and, and to delight in him. And then we seek to develop that by grace. So we delight in God. Now closely connected to that is boldness in prayer. So he says then in verse 27, you will pray to him and he will hear you and you'll pay your vows. Once we are forgiven, we have a new boldness in prayer. John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. As you pray according to God's will, as you delight in him, as you're daily turning away from sin, he hears you, and he uses your prayers. That's what it means that he hears you. It's not just that he hears the words. No, hearing means that God answers prayer, and that's enforced with what I've already mentioned, the respect to paying vows. You'll pay your vows. That means that your, your prayers have been answered, and you come now with this sacrificial vow, this acceptance, as Jacob promised God when he was leaving the land. You know, if you do these things you promised, took a vow, when I come back, this will be an altar, and I'll give 10% of my possessions. He said that was a vow if God heard the prayer and answered it. We could say, put it this way, I think this is perfectly good that let's just say a man in his business enterprise had the opportunity for a very lucrative contract. It'd be very good for his business and his employees. And he prayed over that contract that God would give it to him. And then he said, Lord, if you give me the contract, I will give you 20% of the profit. And that's not bargaining. He said, I will express my gratitude to you in this way. That's what we're talking about here, paying your vows. And know that when God hears and answers your prayer. So, delighting God, he hears your prayers. Uh, the third thing is that uh, he will prosper you. Verse 28, you will also decree a thing. It will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. To decree a thing is, I think the Hebrew is to divide it, but it is to make a plan, to, to determine uh, to do something. So uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, there's a relationship there. He's not giving you the desires of a heart that delights in the world, but delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you desires. And those desires can be also for, for material things. That's not wrong. In fact, uh, we read this morning in the fifth commandment that promise, and the catechism interprets that promise 
about prolonged life in this way. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity. Now, we're not health, wealth, and prosperity people, but it's a promise in Scripture, but they have to have this. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, to such as keep the commandment. And so God is going to disperse wisely and sovereignly as a gracious Father, knowing exactly uh, what He would give us that will not be a temptation and what He would give us that we could not handle. So He disperses those gifts, but more importantly, spiritual plans, plans for a spiritual posterity. Dr. Smith had an ancestor who prayed for 10 generations, and God kept that prayer um, through 10 generations. Well, my wife and I are a bit more greedy, and so we just pray that God will cause all of our descendants to walk before Christ until he returns. Well, that's based on here. Delight in God, repent daily, he will give you your desires. That must be according to his will. But he, does, he shines light on our paths then and, and directs us. And so uh, also in plans to extend the kingdom, plans that we work on here at Antioch, praying together that God would add to us five uh, mature families if it's his will. Well, David said to Solomon in First Chronicles, Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful. Build the house of the Lord your God, just as he's spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding. Give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you're careful to observe the statutes and ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. As we seek God in repentance, God prospers our purposes for his kingdom. That leads to the fourth thing, and that is, God makes you useful. It's, 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 it's amazing. A felon can lose his right to vote. A military man that's been dishonorably discharged, he's stripped of everything. Um, but that's not the alchemy of the gospel, you see. No, in the gospel, regardless of how grievously you've sinned, if you've repented, you will be useful. And then, Think of David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. That's what God's promising in 29 and 30. Now, 29 is one of the most difficult verses in Job to translate. In fact, I have not found one translation that agrees with any of the others. So what we have in the New American Standard is when you're cast down, it starts off wrong, it's, it's men. When you're cast down, you will speak with confidence, the humble person he will save. I think the King James actually comes the closest here. When men are cast down, then you, the righteous who's been restored, shall say, there's a lifting up, and he'll save the humble person. And here he's saying that the person who has repented, he himself has been cast down, now is able to come alongside someone who is being cast down and encourage them first with his words. What does Jesus say to Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned, strengthen your brothers. He'll sin grievously. He repents. He then 
has the task to strengthen his brothers. We also can strengthen them by our prayers for them. And so well, we're told in 1 John 5, 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God. God will for him give life to those who commit, not, who commit sin, not leading to death. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they, that they're sinning. You pray for them. God will restore them. And that leads to verse 30. He will deliver one who is not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Not only will you encourage them with your words, you can pray for them, but you can actually be used to restore them. The cleanness of hands here refers to the one who has confessed his sin and is seeking to walk according to the commandments of God. And Jude says, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Wasn't that the case of so many in the Bible? In addition to Peter, you think of Saul of Tarsus. Think of David after his repentance. How often God uses the very sins that we have committed uh, to enable us when we've been restored to help others. I call it God's Marshall Plan. After World War II... The United States invested a huge amount of money in Europe, and it was called the Marshall Plan. Most of it went to Germany to rebuild Germany, who was treacherous and destroyed many Americans and Brits and French and others. But that Marshall Plan enabled the countries of Europe to be restored. Well, this is God's Marshall Plan, you see. When he grants us repentance, he then works in us to work in others. And that's a glorious privilege. And so the blessings of repentance, delighting God, confidence in prayer, prosperous in your decisions in life, and useful in serving God and helping others. So you see the proposition? The Lord greatly blesses those who seek him in repentance. I hope you understand this the nature of repentance, its foundation, its work. And these four great blessings that God has uh, given to us. And that um, by the standard, you will examine your daily repentance. And that you will seek to grow in repentance as you grow in the grasp of who God is. As you grow in your grasp of the knowledge of Scripture. That your daily will grow in a hatred of sin and um, Turning away from it and seeking God as he offers himself to us in the gospel. And as you come to the Lord's table this morning, I trust you're coming repentant. Now, none of us have ever repented as we ought. I told class the other day at seminary that when I was still a papist that I'd go to confession. I was always so uptight about it. How in the world can I remember all my sins? So I'm going to have a lot of unforgiven sin. But it doesn't work that way, you see. God forgives us of all of our sins when we trust Christ. And those that he brings to our mind are the ones we repent of. Then we repent of our repentance and we repent of the sins we don't, are not aware of. So you're not going to remember everything by far. But is your hatred of sin growing? As you examine your life by the law of God, uh, do you become uh, more affected by, by uh, your, your sin and, and desire to be holy and righteous, to have one with, with clean hands? Then as you come to the table, because this is quite preposterous to think that God does this kind of stuff for sinners, isn't it? A lot of people don't believe that God could restore them. They've messed up so badly 
But see, that's the promise that we have here. That God has done everything to restore us. And there's no sin too great that you would desire to be relieved of that God cannot and would not forgive if you'll come to him in Christ Jesus. It's that that simple. Turn away from your sin and repentance. Come to God in faith and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here we're promised that God took to himself a human nature. So the God-man fully would satisfy the just demands of God and pay the penalty of our sin and be raised from the dead as we had in our prayer of confession. And so it's a great promise to us here at the Lord's table that all that we are in need of, God gives us in Christ. Have that promise in mind as you come to the table. Let us stand and pray. Oh, glorious God, we thank you for the instructions of your word, even given in a proper manner with wrong presuppositions, and yet by the Spirit, so full of wisdom and light. We thank you for this call to repentance. And we thank you, Lord, for the Spirit who blesses it to us. We pray that we all will be repenting now and clinging to Christ as we come to your table, as we live our lives daily. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.